You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Nehemiah chapter 5. <laughs> We've taken a couple of breaks from the book, and we're going to try to get back into it uh, over the next uh, few weeks here. Nehemiah 5. It says, And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews. For there were that said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore we take up corn for them, that we may eat and live. Some also that uh, there were that said, We have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, and houses, that we might buy corn because of the dearth. There were also that said, We have borrowed money for the king's tribute, and that upon our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And lo, we bring into bondage our unto bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. And some of our daughters are brought unto bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. Doesn't sound like a good situation. And I was very angry when I heard their cry in these words. Then I consulted with myself, and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, and said unto them, Ye exact usury every one of his brother. And I set a great assembly against them, and I said unto them, We after our ability have redeemed our brethren the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen, and will ye even sell your brethren? Or shall they be sold unto us? Then they held they their peace, and found nothing to answer. Also I said, it is not good that ye do ought ye not to walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? I likewise, and my brethren and my servants might, might exact of them money and corn. I pray you, let us leave off this usury. Restore, I pray you, to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the corn, the wine, and the oil that ye exact of them. Then said they, we will restore them and will require nothing of them. So will we do as thou sayest. Then I called the priests and took an oath of them that they should do according to this promise. Also I shook my lap and said, so God shake out every man from his house and from his labor that performeth not this promise. Even thus be he shaken out and emptied. And all the congregation said, Amen and praise the Lord and the people did according to this promise. We're going to stop reading there today, and I don't even know how much of the passage we get to, because I want to make one key application tonight that I think will be a help to us this evening. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time together. Father, we come and are humbled that you would even have any time for us, that you would take the time, and not that you are even... Um, bound to time, but that you would right now insert yourself among us and use your word to speak to our hearts and, and illuminate your, your word. Lord, the fact that you would go to any of those links is amazing and more than we deserve. And I pray tonight that you would help us to see uh, an application here that I think is important to the success and future of a local church. God, help us to see where we may be guilty of this. I pray that you give us wisdom and discernment 
uh, to see ourselves even in this passage here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. I went back and I looked at what I preached the last night uh, that we were in Nehemiah chapter 4. And as I, when I went back, it was, again, this is on, in March, it was, it was pretty interesting uh, what, what the Lord had led me to preach that night. At least I, th- I thought it was. We had no idea what was coming. And we didn't know what, what, lie, what lay ahead for us. And we didn't know uh, about the next few months. It was right before coronavirus hit. We, we, and we adjusted our services. And I was talking about, and in that service, Nehemiah chapter 4, I was talking about whether or not we choose to listen to voices of fear or voices of faith. And how interesting in that, in that evening that we would be coming up to a place in our culture, in our country, uh, that we would be trying to discern the voices of fear and the voices of faith. Because there's a lot of vo- there are a lot of voices of fear out there right now. And there aren't as many voices of faith. The, the enemies of the Jews had, had surrounded them and they were attempting, as the Jews were attempting to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and, and they were building the walls and yet their enemies were surrounding them and their Their enemies were mocking them openly. They were making threats to God's people. And even some of their own had grown afraid that that, uh, they they were even spreading fear to those among them instead of encouragement because they were listening to all the voices that were surrounding them. And I'm not going to go back and preach it, but I just want to give you a few uh, points of review because I think it's a help. And then as we lead into Nehemiah 5 tonight. So Nehemiah then gets up in chapter 4 and he, he preaches a message as a voice of faith in order to counter all the fear all around them. And his message was the need to focus on three things in order to have faith, not fear. And that night we talked about how Nehemiah said, you must, if you're going to have faith and not fear, you must focus on the person and his name is God. What's going on around you isn't so scary when you compare it to the size of your God. The other thing that, that Nehemiah stood up and said we must focus on is not just a person, but we also have, a ba- have to have a balance of progress and protection. And Nehemiah knew that they needed to have a balance between making progress on the wall or on the work, but then also protecting themselves from the enemies. And, and I thought about the parallels as a local church in that we need to make progress as a church, but we can't do it at the expense of protecting truth. We must protect our doctrines. We must protect what we believe. And yes, we want to make progress, but not at the expense of what we believe. And I think that's what we saw there. Another point of focus that he talked about was partnership. And how Nehemiah knew that the work couldn't move forward unless God's people were in it together. And without re-preaching the whole message, I focused then on Nehemiah's concerns that the work had gotten so large that the people were separated on the wall from each other. And what started as a small work, it says, when they began the work, they were doing it hand in hand or arm in arm. It was so small that they could work next to each other. And yet as the wall got builder, uh, bigger, they started spreading out along the wall. And what was, what was at one point an intimate relationship of working together, now they were all over the wall and they would hardly see each other, other anymore. And during that message, I, I made the point that we're in this, you know, we have a big building and I'm thankful 
right now that we have a big building. It allows us to spread out like we do and not have to worry about what other, uh, other churches are dealing with. In many ways, I'm grateful for it. But I did make the point that night that a big building, as good as it is, it can be a detriment in some ways to the fact that, that you're not close anymore, that you're not working right alongside of each other anymore. And, and how we also then also live all over Sioux Falls. And we've got some in the southeast to the northwest and, and into Minnesota and all directions. And, we, and what I preached was there's a real danger of being isolated as we're in the work together. Because what started out as small, it starts to expand and get bigger and we are, are, have, have danger. We're at risk of being isolated from our own church family and how we're not to meant, meant to do this alone. So when Nehemiah said in verse 20, then in what place thereof, in verse chapter 4, in what place thereof ye hear the sound of the trumpet, resort ye thither unto us. Our God shall fight for us. He was letting them know the importance of of coming together if we want to make progress on the work. He was, he was saying, basically, we're not, it's not, okay, you're here doing the work, you're there doing the work, you're there, there doing the work. No, we, when you hear the trumpet, come together to that, to that one place so that we can continue the work. And I think we all felt the isolation for a couple months, didn't we? We, we felt what it was like, and, we, and isolation is a hindrance to a church attempting to accomplish God's work. It's important for us to come together. Uh, we need times like this. And, and there are, I know there are more that, that should be here, and I wish they were, but I wish they saw the value of the partnership in a local church. We need each other. We need to come together. I mean, six feet apart, that's fine. But to come together and be encouraged as a church, I don't want to revisit all of it, but I, just, I might even encourage you to go back, and I don't do this often, listen to that message for some points I made about the benefits of coming together and, and, and how it helps our church. And not only that, it even helps our families when we come to church together. Don't for, maybe get back there and listen to that. I think it might be a help. Just some interesting points from Nehemiah in chapter 4. But then, then they get into chapter 5 and things start internally going south. It's a new issue here. The people are all working together. They're working toward one goal and yet... Their human nature gets in the way. That sounds familiar too, doesn't it? We find that God's people are taking advantage of each other. And it has bad effects. And, and this is something else that seems familiar in verse 1. This chapter begins with a strike, a labor strike. There was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews, it says. Now, I'm pretty sure they probably, they weren't picketing and they weren't stopping traffic or sitting in the middle of the interstate, but it becomes obvious that they had stopped working and they'd started complaining. And the first thing I notice here, and I want you to carry this idea as we go through all of this tonight, is that the work stops. It's important for us to remember that when they are taking the time to complain about the situation, and I'm not even saying they were unjust in doing it, I'm just saying that the work has to stop if you're focused on other things. When secondary issues uh, become the primary issues, then the primary focus becomes lost. The work on the wall can't continue if there's an issue among the people. And it's easy in a church setting uh, to get so focused on secondary matters that you cease to move toward what truly matters. Have you ever been there before? I'm just going to be transparent about it. In some ways, uh, before all of this happened, 
Uh, it was easy on a Sunday for myself to get so just wrapped up in what's coming next that I sometimes didn't take the time to really remember what matters on a Sunday. And yet this, this season for me in some ways has kind of recalibrated my mind and my heart into remembering that what matters the most is my relationship with God and worship to God and letting Him work in me. And sometimes when we strip away all of the exteriors, we can get back to what matters the most. Because in a church setting, it's easy, not just internally, but with each other, to get wrapped up with secondary issues that, that may need to be dealt with because there are some big enough issues to deal with. But we need to make sure as we're working together in God's work that it's big enough uh, to, to stop and deal with because as soon as we stop and deal with an issue, then the progress of the work is at stake. You can't focus on two things at once. And here were the complaints of the people. Some had large families and they didn't have enough to eat. And, and others owned more property and they owned homes and vineyards, but because they had to mortgage them or, or borrow against them, then the value of their property, um, they had to, well, they had to buy food, so they had to mortgage the value of their property in order to borrow money and buy food. Many were in great debt, but they were unable to pay their bills or pay back what they owed. So why was this happening? Why are the people in such an uproar? What was causing the problem? Well, one of the first problems that you see here is in verse 3, there's a famine. It says, some also there were that said, we've mortgaged our lands, vineyards, and houses that we might buy corn because of the dearth. Apparently, there's a famine. There's a drought taking place. Growing food was an issue already because of the drought, but add in the problem that all of these people had recently moved into Jerusalem and they didn't have the infrastructure to grow the, fruit, the food that they needed in order to feed everybody. I mean, think about that. It would be like if you have a small garden in your backyard and you're just growing some, some tomatoes and cucumbers and, and a few other things and then suddenly three or four other families move into your home and they're all depending on that little garden to feed them. Um, that, that's an issue. There's not enough food and there's a drought already, but the land isn't prepared to produce that much food for that many people. There's not enough. So the first problem is there's a famine, there's a dearth. Another problem is taxes. Look at verse 4. There were also that said, we have borrowed money for the king's tribute and that upon our lands and vineyards. Artaxerxes was the king of Persia and he was demanding serious tribute because he controlled their land. It sounds a little bit familiar if you've been listening in to the series in Haggai and that they were serving another, another uh, king, the Persians. And the, the Persians had authority over most of the known world at that time. The Persians, Artaxerxes, had armies and systems set up all over the region to help him main, maintain control. And that stuff doesn't happen without incurring serious costs. You don't just send an army of thousands to different places all over the region and, and not have to pay for it. So everyone living under Artaxerxes' domain paid taxes. And the way that I understand it is most people, most of the people collecting the taxes for Artaxerxes were crooked. So they were likely then charging much more than what the king required and keeping the extra for themselves. So these first two problems were outside the control of the Israelites. The, the problem, again, was famine, which they didn't control. And their second problem was taxes to the king, which they also could not control. But the third problem was a problem of their own making. 
The third problem was something that they were choosing of their own accord. And the third problem was usury. Usury is, a, is an interest rate that's charged from a lender to a borrower. And you probably understand that uh, interest rate if you've ever borrowed a home or borrowed money to buy a vehicle or something, a large purchase, then you've borrowed money, you understand interest. It's the amount that the bank charges that for, for letting you use their money to make a purchase like that. Now, there weren't banks on every corner there in Jerusalem, and like there are in Sioux Falls. It seems like there's, there are banks on every corner, sometimes multiple banks on every corner. So, the, so these were often then private loans. What the people would do is the, those that did not have much money, they would go to those with wealth and they would, they would borrow money from neighbors or those that were wealthy in their community and then the wealthy would charge them usury or interest rates. So very often the poor homeowners or the poor borrowers, I should say, they were not able to pay the money back immediately. So the practice then was that the wealthy would make the poor uh, indentured servants. They would owe them now not just the money, but they would require of them to work it off as slaves until they could pay it off. But the problem was the creditors were charging so much interest that the borrower could never pay it off. And that's what they're saying here in verse 4, at the end of verse 4, he says, neither is it in our power to redeem them. They're like, we're making payments and we're not even making the minimum payment. Nehemiah, we can't afford this. You ever felt like that, like that where you had a loan that seems so big that you're making payments on it, but it seems like no progress is being made? Well, that's what they're doing, except that these are neighbors doing it to their neighbors. These lenders were taking such advantage of their neighbors that they were basically making them slaves for life. So if you had money and someone came to you and needed money to buy food, you would charge them you would make them basically pay you to borrow your money, high interest rates, and the terms were so high, then you could allow that debt to be something that caused them to be in debt to you for years and years and years if you chose to because they couldn't pay it back. That's what's implied here in these verses, in verse 5. And again, so knowing that, think about what they're saying. Yet now our flesh is as, sorry, yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants, and some of our daughters are brought unto bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. So the fourth problem that we see here is, is the usury or the high interest rates turned into slavery. Those that loan money required labor in return to the point that the indebted family was basically owned by the loaning family. And they're saying in verse 5, it's like our children are their children now. They own us now. So many people were being enslaved by each other that they weren't even working on the wall anymore. They were working all the time to pay back their debts and to pay off the interest. This environment of taking advantage of a brother or sister had completely stopped the work of God. And because they weren't dealing with each other properly, Nehemiah then has to take off his construction hat and put on his referee hat. The work had to stop because the people weren't mature enough to deal with each other correctly. And you say, well, it's all business decisions. You know, nothing seems wrong about it to me. 
except that it was against the law of Moses. They were charging interest to their fellow Jews. That was against the law of Moses. And because they were charging interest that couldn't be paid, they were enslaving each other, which was also against the law. And there's so much going wrong in between the, between the people here. Uh, we don't have time. I would like to get into every, every, every facet and, and go through it with detail and, and look at the faulty mindsets. But tonight I want to focus on an application. And it may seem somewhat disconnected, but I believe it's an important matter that all of us need to be reminded of. So as we make this transition from this story of debt and slavery to our lives, I want you to follow so that you don't miss the transition. As I pondered how to apply maybe what's happening, I couldn't, see, I couldn't help but see a parallel between their situation and ours regarding debt. And I understand there isn't money loaning and borrowing and going on among God's people today like there seems to have been back then. Uh, and if you have enough money to do that, I'll talk to you after. So if we need money, we go to a bank or we go to a credit union. That's how it works now. If, if they needed money, though, they would go to their wealthy neighbor. It's, it's a totally different situation. So there's no application to us. Well, so the, you know, that's the end of the debt discussion, but not so fast. You see, if we're talking about debt, we don't owe each other money, but there's another transaction that causes debt among God's people all the time. See, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus Christ said to the disciples to pray and say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Is that speaking of financial debt? Is it speaking of, of transactions with your card or writing a check every month? Are we to forgive all money owed to us? No, I don't think that's the point. I think we all understand that the point in Matthew 6, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, the point there is regarding offenses and forgiveness. Sin is a debt to God. We know that. When we sin before God, we put ourselves in a position in which we owe Him a debt. We have an obligation to Him. So when we ask Him to forgive us, we are asking Him to forgive our sin debt. And I'm thankful, folks, tonight. I'm thankful that we serve a God who loves sinners enough to have made a payment that covers all of our sin debt. All we have to do is confess our sin, and He's willing to forgive our debts. But Matthew 6 talks about debtors implying that there are others who owe us for offenses against us. Luke 11, Jesus Christ, another form of this prayer, He gives instructions to pray and say, Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Listen, I'm not talking about money tonight. I'm talking about sin debt. And according to Jesus Christ, if someone has an obligation of sin, we have an obligation of forgiveness. I'm going to say that again. If, we, if someone has an obligation of sin, we have an obligation of forgiveness. And in my opinion, one of the greatest threats to the work of God in a church family like ours is when offenses are not handled properly. And I, I know that maybe that's not... I just want you to understand, I've, I've known many churches 
that are no longer churches or no longer what the kind of church they ought to be. And it all started because two people did not know how to handle an offense between each other. You've seen it too. If you've ever witnessed a church split, if you've ever witnessed churches go astray and you've seen infighting, then you know because an offense was not handled properly, then it, got, then it stopped the work of God. Because we're all human beings, we must constantly deal with sin debts that are owed to us by other people. Offenses are possible all the time. Listen, if you're the kind of person that wants to be offended about something, you will find something, trust me. You could come to any service at Eastside Baptist Church and find a reason to leave offended about something. And I know because some people do it. And honestly, I've been in that mode before where I'm looking for something all the time and I'm letting every little thing trigger me. And I'm getting upset about every little thing that somebody says or somebody does. If you want to be offended, you can find a reason for debt to be incurred just about every single day. If you're looking for it in just about every conversation you have with somebody here at Eastside Baptist Church, you could probably find a reason to be offended. If you're looking for it, you could have it and you could hear something that could cause an offense in your heart in just about any sermon. I, I mean, I've, I've, I've been there. I've, I've listened to somebody else preaching and if I take something the wrong way, boy, I could let it sit and I could let it fester. And that can happen here at Eastside Baptist Church too. You could be offended at just about any sermon. You could be offended through a misunderstood text. And I hate texting. I ain't telling you. I mean, I'll try to get my wife to call and just call him. She's like, I don't want to call. I don't want to text. Because I get these texts from people and I'm like, in my mind, they're like, well, you're the greatest pastor ever. But they were thinking, you're the greatest pastor ever. You know what I mean? You read things into texting and, and if you're not careful, somebody will send you a text and it can be completely innocent and you say, well, they just said K, the letter K. That's all they said. I know they're so mad at me right now. You could be offended by a text. You could be offended if someone doesn't answer your phone call. You can find offense if getting onto somebody else's child for their behavior at church. Listen, I, I've seen it happen among church members you know, one person gets on to the other and, and there's an offense there and it turns into a big deal. Uh, you can be offended if, you find, if you're misquoted or, or someone's, uh, you're talking about somebody else or, or, or information gets relayed to you in the wrong way. It can be an offense and the person that said it didn't even say it that way. You can be offended if someone asks you a question in the wrong way. You can be offended if someone doesn't say hi to you. You can be offended if someone doesn't wear a mask. You can be offended if someone does wear a mask. You can be offended if someone shakes your hand or not. Listen, the list of possible offenses is endless. And especially when people work together and serve together and interact with each other and deal with each other multiple times a week. And I'm talking about people from all per of all personalities from all walks of life. We've got positive people. We've got negative people. We have fun people. We have boring people. I'm not going to point any of those out. We've got people that click with each other and then people that don't click with you. And listen, in any setting 
with people, in any setting with human beings, offenses are possible and even probable. But we must make a decision about how we deal with other people's debts. Because if Eastside Baptist Church is the kind of place where people have been offended and are owed a debt, hold on to the obligation to the point of slavery, to the point of enslavement. Guess what happens to the work at Eastside Baptist Church? It stops. People can't focus on what matters because of secondary matters. And not only does the focus of the people become affected, but leaders have to take off their leader's hat, leader hats and wear referee hats. I've been in situations like that where the leader, it's like a referee, they're trying to figure out how to work, the, work this conversation and help to get to the bottom of it. And listen, and it's stressful. And in those moments, the leader who should be leading is not leading, he's being a referee. Nehemiah had to stop everything and deal with his own emotions. It says that he had to consult with himself and, he, and it took up time and energy from this man who had an important job to do because people weren't responding to things the right way. And listen, my point in this is that this situation stopped the work of God. And I want to stop here and say, I'm thankful that I can preach a message like this when there's none of this going on. It's always more fun as a preacher to preach preventive messages as opposed to intervening and trying to fix a problem. And I am in no way preaching a sermon about offenses because there's a major uh, underlying offense and there are lots of fights and things going on. No, I'm not saying that I'm thankful that right now, Eastside Baptist Church, we're doing well with each other. Let me just say that. Thank you. Thank you for being the kind of church that m- almost all the time... This is the kind of message you could preach and nobody would take it wrong. I'm thankful for that. But my point is that a situation like this will stop the work of God. And you could read all of this. We could read down through verse 13 again and you wouldn't see one single stone being placed on the wall. Nehemiah is having to fix the problem. And listen, if, and it's all because people who should have been mature enough to know how to deal with a debt didn't follow God's instructions about it. They had the law. They knew what to do. They could have followed God's word without intervention from Nehemiah, but they didn't, and the work was affected. So here's the principle that I want to give you tonight. We either value the work or we value ourselves. And I know that's heavy, but listen, I can preach it with passion because we don't have any issues. We don't have things going on. I'm trying to help us to prevent it. But we either value the work or we value ourselves. We either operate as if we matter the most or we operate as if the work matters the most. Something has to be the highest virtue. It's either the work or it's me. The work of God requires a lot of self-denial, doesn't it? I mean, working as a part of a team... Have you ever been a part of a sports team or you ever been part of a, of a choir and music? You're just one among many. And if everybody wants the key position and everybody wants all the attention, it doesn't work. I mean, if in football, an offensive lineman says, I want the ball sometimes, they're not going to win any games. 
If he says, well, I want to be the guy catching the, the football, or I want to be throwing the football, or I want to, get, I want to score all the points in a, on a basketball court, then you, you don't have a team. You, don't, you can't win. It doesn't work that way. People have to, in a, in, a, in a larger scale, when you're in a partnership, you have to have a lot of self-denial. There have to be plenty of times when you're just not the one. Being part of a, a part of a team and in a partnership requires a lot of deference. It requires a lot of patience. It requires many moments of us biting our tongue sometimes. You know what it requires? It requires private forgiveness and public grace. Private forgiveness and public grace. It means if somebody, if maybe you don't get along with somebody, and maybe they just rub you the wrong way, and you just have never really gotten along, or maybe something happened, and they said this, or you said this, or their kids did this, and there's this issue, and there's, this, there's some, just an underlying struggle between you. Listen, it requires you to go before the Lord and forgive them between you and the Lord to release the offense, to release the debt, private forgiveness, and then public grace when you see them face to face. Because people are people. And you are too. In case you didn't know. So we are either, listen, we either place the highest value on the work or ourselves. We either, we're either in this to advance God's kingdom through labor and relationships, or we're in this to win every little battle for ourselves. You ever been around somebody like that? Where it seems like in every conversation, they have to have the last word. In every interaction, they have to let you know they're in control. In every, every argument, there's no possible way they could ever be wrong. Those kind of people. And listen, you can be that kind of person. But Eastside Baptist Church is not what it is today because, uh, because people have been like that. Eastside Baptist Church is what it is today because people practice humility and deference and private forgiveness, and public grace, and they're in it for something bigger than themselves. And if you want to change the trend of Eastside Baptist Church, be the kind of person that holds on to every offense, and holds on to every debt. You could be that person, and you could win some battles. You could have the last word. You could make the comment and get your way. But all, in all the temporary gains, you will also lose a lot. You'll sacrifice some relationships. You'll weaken a church family. You'll distract others from their responsibilities and you'll take up a lot of time with people trying to fix the problem and you might even in your own heart not even realize it, but you might even enslave a brother or sister because you just can't relieve, release an offense. Folks, we have to choose. If it's big enough to deal with it, deal with it. It, it, I mean, there are times where something is big enough, where something is clearly a sin, and it should not be let go. But if it's not clearly a sin, and if it's not big enough to stop the work over, and you can release that offense to God and move forward for the sake of the work, then do it. Because through all of it, I want you to remember that Christ forgave you. And if Christ, if Christ was to operate like I operate with others, would I be a slave to the consequences of my own sin? 
I wonder how many slaves, and I hope you understand the way I'm using that word tonight. I wonder how many slaves are owned in the minds of fellow Christians in churches all across our land because they had this offense and they had a choice, but they chose to embrace it rather than release it. And now they've enslaved a brother or sister. We've heard a lot about slavery reparations lately, and I don't want to get into all of it because I do believe there's plenty of blame shifting and rhetoric there. But I'll just let it be known publicly, I'm against slavery. I think every person matters to God. No one is inherently less valuable as a soul in the eyes of God than somebody else. But how many of us who would stand here and say that and even say amen have enslaved someone else because we refuse to forgive a debt? Just like God's people right here in Nehemiah 5. Some of us, and pardon the expression, some of us are slave owners because we can't release an offense and as long as we can hold on to it, we will. But listen, it's time to let the bondage cease because not only does it stop the work of God corporately, it stops the work of God in you. Matthew 18, 35 says, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespass. You realize that if you choose to hold on to a debt and not release it to enslave a brother or sister, then God treats you the way that you're treating them. It stops God's work in you. And it comes down to this. What matters the most to you? The work of God or yourself? The gospel or your feelings? I mean, many people need the work of God. Everybody needs the work of God. And I'm just going to use it as an example. But listen, this morning, God was working in somebody's life. God was working in that family this morning. And, and maybe she wasn't ready, but he was. And God used it. And I'm not even saying he used the preaching. I'm saying that he used everything that Francisco saw this morning to begin to soften his heart to the gospel. God was working. God was moving. And I don't know all, all that was going, going on behind the scenes, and I don't know all that it's going to turn into but listen, all I have to say is this, is that at Eastside Baptist Church, we either value things like that happening, or we say, no, I have to win every little battle. We either say, no, I value a lost soul coming to Christ, or I, I have to win this argument. We either value the work, or we value ourselves. Heaven forbid that we hinder the work because we've enslaved each other due to debts we feel that we're owed. You're prone to church slavery if any of these things apply to you. If someone has ever gotten onto your children for their behavior, uh, you, you might be prone to church slavery. Christian slavery. If someone's ever gotten some attention that you felt you deserved, if someone's ever challenged you about something, if if someone has a different personal standard than you, if someone has failed and you know about it, if someone has ever taught or preached a message that you sat through and didn't like, these are all areas in which an offense can take place. And we have to decide 
if it's about us or if it's about the work. The opportunities for Christian slavery are endless. But you know what puts a stop to it every time? Psalm 119, 165 says, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Listen, your level of offendability is directly connected to your love for God's word. And if you walk around and every little thing hits you the wrong way, every little thing is an offense, and you're holding on to every debt that anybody has ever owed you, then according to that verse, then it's, it's right, it's just to question your love for God's law. If you're easily offendable, it says something about your relationship to God's word. Folks, if we want to be a church that rises above the offendability of the world around us, then we have to follow God's word and fall in love with God's word and follow his instruction and not live according to our emotions, but live according to truth. Or our level of offendability will prevent God from doing real work. As an Eastside Baptist Church has a lot of potential for something special. I truly believe it. But I also believe this. If we're not serious enough about God's word to remain unoffendable, then God's work will be hindered in Sioux Falls. I truly believe that. So maybe tonight is a night that we choose the work of God over self. And we say, God... I will be unoffendable because there's something bigger at play. There's something bigger at stake. There are more Franciscos and there are more people like Victor who was here this morning as well and, and I'm thinking about people that have been saved recently. Patrick, Ace, got saved in the last few months. There's a lot of Patricks out there just waiting to hear God's word and wait, waiting to see God work in them and I think there's a lot of little Brindleys um, in Sioux Falls that need God's work in their lives. I'd love to prevent a lot of little Brindleys from having to go through a lot of big trouble because they heard the word when they were young. There's a lot of work in every life that God wants to do. And they may never receive it and they may never submit to it. But I for sure don't want to be uh, responsible because I'm an offendable person. For, for being the one that stops the work of God in their lives. I'd love for God to have the free reign and the free movement, and if they choose to reject it, I cannot stop that. But I don't want to be the one responsible because I'm an offendable kind of person. Let's make sure that we're not practicing church, Christian enslavement by not releasing the debts that other people owe us we make it either about ourselves or we make it about the work. And can I tell you, church, I'm thankful that we have a church that makes it about the work. And I'm thankful that time after time, I could, I mean, plenty of times there are opportunities for offense and you didn't hold on to it. You released it because in your mind there's something bigger at stake and that's the work of God. Let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed.
We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.